Hello and welcome back to the Zenden listeners. And if this is your first podcast that you're tuning into, welcome. Uh, this podcast is illuminating a genderless dialogue. And today I'm really happy to release the episode with the man who introduced me to a genderless dialogue, Mark McGrath. Uh, Mark is a movement coach, rehab specialist. Uh, to be honest, I don't really like labeling what Mark does because I feel as though his approach and training mechanisms are based in open-ended inquiry and for that reason I believe that some things are best unsaid and experienced. Um, So I, I met Mark in 2018, came to him with a pretty banged up body after three knee recos and uh, I don't even know how many soft tissue injuries there were, there were quite a few in there um, and Mark introduced me to DNS or dynamic neuromuscular stabilization if I am to unpack DNS briefly during our first critical years of life our nervous system is establishing posture and, and body movement and when we are training in DNS, what we are doing is emphasizing the neurodevelopment aspects of our motor control. Uh, in order to assess and restore any sort of dysfunction that is going on in our locomotor system. So if you'd like to learn more, um, the Prague School DNS on Google will hold you in good stead. In this podcast, we also cover the global body function Uh, the hierarchy or organization of stability. Um, We do touch on awareness itself and some notable sages that have had influences on Mark's self-inquiry. And we finish off with the opportunities that are arising uh, in the crypto space and in particular the EOS blockchain. So enjoy the podcast and uh, see you on the other side. Alrighty. G'day, Mark. Nice to host this session with you. It's always fantastic to share uh, common grounds and common space with you. So uh, welcome to the Zenden podcast online versions. <laughs> <laughs> no, great, Dimmy. We're, you know, we're here for it, mate. We've been talking about it for a bit. So nice to get it happening during lockdown. Looking forward to it. Yeah, likewise. Yeah, we had a um, pretty decent sauna session just before the lockdowns came in. You sort of changed the game for me with the saunas because, you know, obviously I go in frequently because, you know, fortunate enough to have one at home. But uh, I think maybe the first time you came over, we uh, we did pretty much one max session, had a cold shower, went to the sun and then went back in and we did that three times. And um, it was a game changer for me. That's what I've sort of been doing since and really that's really testing the body and obviously being able to have really nice conversations in there in there as well it sort of tops it all off no better place to speak mate but it melts all the structures you know and um yeah that i mean the silence is nice too it's really it's just a really organic i think the the you know anytime you're in the, the sauna steam together as mm. you know you and me, you, me and Troy. I mean, we look certainly look forward to much more of that. Yeah, for sure. Getting something regular going. Yeah. Um, it'll be quite nice to get something regular going in that sphere. Um, what's your experience with the, you know, obviously we're detoxifying in there, but what's your experience with the saunas? Yeah, I always relate it to... You know, if we think cardiovascular, that's just obviously one level that it's happening. But it's also a terrific stre- uh, stress stressor for cardiac muscle. So remember, we've got cardiac muscle, skeletal muscle and smooth muscle, you know, with the organ system being smooth muscle. So that long duration 
um, heat stress at, at the level of the heart is fantastic. But then if we think about it, then um, vasodilation, so opening up of the vascular system and the arterial walls, et cetera, and then all the way to the skin surface where the capillary bed, you know, opens to the skin surface and obviously, you know, perspiration. So when you follow that from the central, uh, you know, the heart organ to the skin, then, you know, sauna is an absolute no-brainer, mm. you know, let, let alone the other interrelated um, organ systems that it's that it's impacting but i think you know um that's you know that's why when you start having them you you sort of don't stop you know if you've had some sort of like given it a good chance then you know particularly to get you through winter you know you know we're obviously southern hemisphere of australia so it does get cold in winter and i think that's also why they're so popular in northern europe mm. Mm. You know, no better way to survive the winter. Yeah, exactly right. What was that? Um, I can't remember the guy you mentioned, but he something along about anti-aging and not necessarily extending life beyond its means, but enjoying it to the fullest. And his true approximation of a healthy human was about 180, 180 years old. And he was big on the saunas as well. Yeah, doc, Dr. Sultanov, Dr. Vagif Sultanov, who um, one of the founders of the Bioeffectives. So he, he developed Bioeffective B, which was a sauna oil from the three species, Siberian fir, Scotch pine and European spruce. And he developed that for the 1980 Moscow Olympics. And he, so, you know, you obviously go in, you start sweating you apply the B to the skin around the, the organ system and the uh, vascular, like the groins and the armpits. And you take two BioA prior to the sauna, drink Siberian Red, which is the bioeffective eye, and then you take another BioA on exiting the sauna. And he said, if you, you know, did that regularly, he felt that, you know, the lifespan was somewhere between 150 and 180 years because all of the factors that can kill you, so particularly toxic fragments, you know, entering the bloodstream and maybe causing a blockage or, and then back to what I said about the heart, is that all of that is addressed in this protocol. Mm. Mm. Pretty sure. So that was his rationale. <laughs> yeah, no, very, <laughs> very much so, mate. Uh, no, it's, uh, it's quite an amazing little space there so i'm very fortunate to have that at home um if we, yeah. if we rewind back a little bit mark i came to you in i'm assuming it was about 2018 2017 around there with a lot of dysfunction in my locomotor system my prior injuries with my knee reconstructions and then the poor re rehab that was done with those injuries caused a bit of dysfunction in the way I was operating and my body kept breaking down. Something that you're very familiar with when, when people do come to see you. Yeah. And for me personally, your approach on the global body was something that I hadn't experienced with other people that I had seen prior. And there were a lot of people that I saw prior. It was always like, e.g., hamstrings mm. torn, we need to strengthen your hamstring, et cetera, et cetera. So... Mm your approach to look at my body as a whole and, and not isolate um, was something that initially sort of grabbed my attention. Then obviously through that, through that, there was a lot of uh, pointing and guiding, guiding from you. But at the end of the day, you always put the onus back on me. You know, it's, it's always up to me to actually see and actually know my body and not live in a world of assumption on how my body's operating. So if you could just unpack that in terms of, you know, your approach when you see the body, when you see people, uh, that'd be fantastic. Hmm. No, great, mate. What I'll try and do is I'll use your case study as an example and also then sort of wrap it back into what we, not only what we know, because there's only probably a few of us who know it, but then like where we get stuck with, um, you know, what people think is the limit of what they can do. Great. So, you know, we've just seen the Olympics, you know, they've just recently been on and there's, there's no doubt, you know, the performances, 
you know, world records, Olympic records, um, uh, the capability of these people, how much they train, how much they push themselves. And yet the area that still lags in, let's call it performance, is still posture. So even Professor Collage has said that, you know, anatomical norms are well established, but this idea of posture, there's still little or no agreement. So for me, posture is the, you know, is the, the basis organizing frame for up and down. And we, if we even look at the, you know, like the anatomy from deep to superficial, the deep system anatomy is either perfectly vertical. So the fibers of the diaphragm are purely vertical and then the fibers of the transversus are purely horizontal. So we know from any deep structure that it's actually, it's actually reading up and down through its receptors. Then we add in the, uh, the pelvic floor, which is you know, opposing the push of the diaphragm. We've got the deep neck flexors, which is giving us the information above the diaphragm. And then we've got the arches of the feet which is also a dome-shaped a dome shaped structure, which is informational. So if we come back to when you walked in, you obviously had abducted feet. You had like calves were really bad, huh? And you, you tried strengthening them to the cows had come home. And so with yep. that walk, you were actually avoiding, <laughs> you were actually avoiding that nature in the way the foot wants to work through its vertical basis, you know, like the um, press down of the foot. With, yeah, with good arch support, but then um, nearly everyone who comes in at the start, the bones of the midfoot have stopped gliding. You know, so those, those structures that are meant to glide, just like when we lay the wrist back, the, the uh, wrist bones glide, that's what the midfoot uh, needs to do. So once that's re-established again, then the calf's not overworking relative to our basic, you know, sort of gait cycle. And I don't, I think once you start working on the foot ankle properly, like you never stop, nor do you ever want to. It's just so interesting as to say, where's the pressure? Where's the weight in my feet? Am, you know, am I gripping with the toes? Um, are my hips above my ankles when I'm in standing and then, you know, trunk above hips and ankles, et cetera. So that's, I mean, as you now know, that, that fascination of like up and down making sense with the feet, ankles making sense. But then being introduced to the midline body, which I'm turning around that long axis. And, you know, we, if we're using the locomotion basis, the gait cycle, how that's happening purely reciprocally through support step on the diagonal body. Now, if we backtrack from that to obviously the first thing that gets established from birth is the sagittal body, you know, which starts around, you know, three months and is mature by four and a half months. So that's the front back body, back front body. And that just means if you clipped the back body and the front body together, then it's organized symmetrically that way, you know? When we're on our back, we can lift our legs, which involves that main junction of hip flexion where the, you know, the psoas comes off the lumbar spine. We've got to be stable to be able to lift the legs. And then we're on our front, we lift the head neck. And the organization goes from elbow to elbow down to the pubis. And again, the intra-abdominal pressure, you know, is connecting the girdles. Then five months, uh, we from sagittal, we go to ipsilateral body, which I think, again, in today's world, there's a big gap of what the actual ipsilateral body is, but it's organized left to right, right to left. And that actually, that actually starts with beginning to roll. I think we can say a lot more about that in the adult body than we can in the developing body because as you know from the training of when we're when we're working the ipsilateral stabilizing function we might have one one half where we're pretty strong but the other half you know it it, it, it may be really ambiguous to try and you know develop a push in order to be strong and then seven months onwards we begin to develop you know the diagonal body which that becomes cross crawl to standing and walking. So that's true for all of us at all times. And so if, you, if we're gonna use the word exercise, exercise then tunes to, if I'm doing something sagittal, that that's what's actually happening. I'm not, I'm not in a frontal plane. 
in my sagittal organization and I'm using my support and uprighting and then through ipsy and, and um, contralateral. Um, so, you know, going back to your case, Jimmy, where we then put you in positions to get you started, what, whatever I think you need on day one is like, this is a, has the highest priority. And then the client can say, gee, I don't really see how this relates, but that's because they haven't had much experience of going back to root cause. You know, why am I in this trouble? Why have I walked in the door? And, you know, in your case, again, you've, you've followed all of these, um, you know, like this directionality, and now you're surfing it all. And that's, that's the best place we can get to in our lives is to be understanding and then surfing these inquiry basis to, you know, follow the direction of life because it's, it's so much more than obviously body and movement. Yeah, yeah, spot on. It's quite an interesting uh, debrief of the mechanics of the body. It's it's really extraordinary. Um, obviously, your well, I'm, I was going to say knowledge, but your sort of experience, and that's sort of where I wanted to take that because I found obviously the biggest growth when I've been working with you is that the learning only occurs through actually experiencing and sort of self inquiry and witnessing what is actually occurring. So the role, yeah. although we're talking about the body here, it's just integral that, as we've said initially, the global approach to the body, it starts with yeah. our awareness of the body. Uh, so if you want to unpack that a little bit, the, the, that role that it plays. Yeah. Well, all sophisticated systems had, have had at their birth and their, like what they've followed is really attention. And if we realize that most of the sophistication really had its birth in India with, um, you know, who or what is the self. And then even when, like when uh, Bodhidharma went, you know, to China and then from China to, you know, so Chinese Chan to Japanese Zen, China and Japan really being home of martial arts basis with this, like clarity on attention, we go into sophisticated following of what's happening in the body and what's happening in the task to refine, refine, refine. And we could say the same thing happens in music. And it's inherently rewarding and inherently satisfying. So we're never, when we truly understand this stuff, we're not looking for some sort of payoff into the future the payoff is in the here and now, and it's it's infathomable in terms of you you know it you can't you can't grasp it. It's difficult to explain to someone who's not doing the experiment, and yet you know the the guidance in following this is is incredible. Like you you don't have any doubt anymore. You know, so belief dies and trusting experience is born. And you just, you know, you're following that and wherever your curiosity takes you in your reading, in your, you know, in your conversing, in your practicing, you know, that then just starts to seem to follow this coherent path. And, you know, you, you could quite confidently say that now that that's your experience and you're trusting it, you know, taking you into crypto, um, confidence confidence to take on things because you just know you'll be able to do it you'll be able to work it out and i think you know the body's the great mystery mate which is why you know we're sort of still so bound by surgery for people who you know haven't found this sort of way of approaching uh, rehabilitation is i don't know what's happening i feel pain the pain seems to have a location if i get that location like a surgical intervention, I should be okay. But, you know, back to global, um, that's not, you know, we may be okay for a while until the, the pattern that caused the dysfunction in the first place just does its work again. You know, so that software system that is our function, like it has to be understood at some level either to, to like get me out of trouble and I can maintain or, you know, to all the way to following it through on a, like on a full-on basis. 
Mm. And just on that, Mark, um, the importance of intra-abdominal pressure and, you know, true breathing, using the diaphragm, and then all, all yeah. of it interrelating into our posture, <clears throat> our central nervous system. And it's just baffles me how little that is spoken about our, our breathing, because as we're well aware, our mood, stress and anxiety, et cetera, et cetera, body dysfunction, yeah. it, it really all stems back to the breath. Um, and you introduced the, the uh, skillful means group into some, some practice work, uh, which sort of led me on a bit of a curiosity, curiosity train. Um, and it's something that I've been implementing more and more. And even now it's, it's happening now without me even actually practicing, if that makes sense. It's just, it's there. Whereas initially when I was sort of learning about this stuff, it's like, you have to go back to it and revise it, but now it's just happening organically. So IAP um, and the importance or the interrelation with our posture is something quite crucial. Yeah. Yeah, well, let's, let's start at our species. So we're an upright mammal, you know, and all other mammals, um, you know, even primates are still like quadrupedal and with primates being, you know, probably two-thirds two thirds being able to stabilise in the vertical. So the first miracle is our verticality. With the diaphragm being the hierarchical king of that organisation being that dome-shaped uh, muscle with its, with its fibres organised up into itself, changes its shape to create, to create the pressure you're talking about, which has a piston effect down to the pelvic floor and hips. So, and then obviously that's also our two girdles, shoulder girdle, pelvic girdle. So it connects the two girdles via this pressure and it creates the space between the two girdles while maintaining the physiological curves of the spine. So all other ways of exercising the trunk uh, require like, you know, a shape change or like a bracing or tensing. Whereas when we, when the diaphragm changes its shape to produce intra-abdominal pressure, we, we still have degrees of freedom. So we're not locking segments down, huh? And that's, you know, that again relates back to our locomotion basis. So that, that's the first thing. So the stabilizing function was only dis discovered by Professor Collage. I'm, I'm thinking around 2000, the year 2000. So it's still a very young sort of finding. I was lucky enough to train with Paul Hodges, the Australian physio who put the transverse abdominus on the map. So I was actually following that from the mid nineties when I was at the Victorian Institute of Sport as in strength and conditioning. And we, you know, we were really onto the transversus and really it was in our programming and we were in a way a world leading unit because our athletes were doing so well on the international scene. But it didn't, it never felt like, and this is again, the basis of Pilates with that slight sort of tethering of the transversus. So it's, it's working like slightly by contracting. But in actual fact, in function, the diaphragm contracts and then the transversus works eccentrically. So diaphragm concentric drive, transversus eccentric allow. So that, that's the game changer right there is those fibres are, you know, are working eccentrically with this, with this push. And then back to what you said, Dimmy, about the time it takes to get established. First of all, I've got to find that I'm actually producing the pressure and not just doing a big inhalation, that it's not, it's not big, it's just uh, sufficient or adequate to the task and that I can maintain through an exhalation. And that's what really does take the time for that to feel like I'm not working way too hard mm. that the better that push is the more i can feel that drive to pelvic floor and hips it illuminates the level of my hips so if i'm doing just something basic like a depth squat i know that my sit bones are well informed from the inside push and i know they're traveling towards my heels as i lower and i'm actually keeping an uprighting so i'm not having to change the curves of my spine to get down 
So when you hear all of that, you think, gee, I'm going to get up and try that. It's there's a lot happening, you know, and I've got to push the crown. I'm not, I'm not like, you know, sort of going forward to try and counter lever the head forward as it balanced and falling backwards in the, with my center. Mm-hmm. And then just the, the contrast between intra-abdominal pressure stabilizing function discovered by Prague school, and then all the breath methods that have been, Look, it's, it's over probably 3,000 years, sophisticated use of the breath. And then there's the trendy stuff nowadays with, um, you know, Andrew Huberman's work in the Huberman lab. He's doing some great, he's giving some great, like, neurobiology of the breath, like the Wim Hof stuff. You know, they're, they're also playing with our blood chemistry, playing with the Bohr effect, the, the, you know, the Bohr effect stating that we need um, CO2 in arterial blood in order for the oxygen to decouple from the hemoglobin to the cell. So it's not an oxygen story at the blood level, it's a blood pH CO2 story. So yeah, the further you go down this rabbit hole, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of really good information which might take you two years to just feel like you, you can inhabit it and do well with it, but then you've got the rest of your life to play with it. So I agree with you. I think it's probably the most important understanding for life and for regulation of the organism, you know, along mm. with Josh's stuff, you know, mm. Josh Lamara, who you spoke with on the last, with, you know, light and circadian biology and so forth. We're really starting to get close to having enough to, you know, to do exceptionally well. Mm. Mm. You mentioned uh, the Prague School uh, and sort of the, the basis of dynamic neuromuscular stabilization. Um, your experience with the Prague School, obviously you went over there a couple of years ago with uh, Jordan Moncrief. Um, I'm sure that would be great to uh, hear that story. And also your sort of, not necessarily progression, but experience with DNS and how it's given you a insight on the, on the mechanisms of the body. Yeah, no, very good, Dimmy. So in my case, I hurt my knee when I was 21. I went, I went to go for a mark. A guy fell over in front of me and I, instead of being able to launch, I actually crashed into him and um, had probably like the equivalent of a grade three sprain of the medial ligament. And I did nothing, you know, so three weeks later I was playing and then I started to have left, this was left knee and I started to have left shoulder problems. So that, that was probably my driver to begin to like see exercise a different way in that, like I, you know, I tried to help myself, but it just didn't, you know, I got, I'd get a little bit of improvement, but I just knew I didn't feel right. So that led me, you know, uh, led me to explore yoga and particularly Iyengar yoga and again made gains. Um, I obviously knew everything that opened and shut about like the exercise side of SNC in terms of how you can, you know, train muscle groups, train them well, combinations, etc. And then uh, there was a Chinese Australian physio, Jim Chim, who had incredible observation. Jim himself had actually done two, both Achilles. So again, he'd had injury and injury was his teacher. But we went together to the first Yanda workshop at St. Vincent's. And it was probably, I'm thinking it was sort of 97, 98. And mate, for three days, Yanda did not consult a slide, did not say, um, you know. And I just said, shit. This is it. He spoke about muscle balance being, you know, the relationship between the tonic and phasic systems. He spoke about vestibular, you know, our, our balance centers. He spoke about like it was the beginning of global function. He didn't yet have the diaphragm, but he had uh, like everything in relation to how, like how we could test for muscle balance, test for asymmetry um like for example you'd get you'd watch someone walk you'd watch their umbilicus their belly button and so that just you know that that moment was probably the biggest game changer in my career slash life in terms of like wanting to follow this information 
And I went to a subsequent Yanda workshop probably two years later in the city. Uh, now, when I started to change the way I was working, because I was working in an elite sport environment and it was load-based, and I started to do much more eccentric control, uh, changing the relationship of muscle balance through the antagonist, not the agonist. Um, I lost, you know, um, people, you know, it was unfamiliar for people. So in some ways I got better because I was more effective, but you're already starting to lose some because it's not conventional. But I was happy to surf that because I was, uh, the, the differences I noted in myself, I, I knew it was true, you know, I knew it was how we needed to train. So then uh, I started, so I was at VIS, AIS Tennis. I left tennis in uh, 2003. I'd done some consulting with Blue Earth Foundation and went on full-time with Blue Earth as a program coach development manager for, you know, creating an, an integral movement education approach uh, with, with a team of others. Now, in 2005, a chiropractor by the name of Wayne Haynes and I went to Prague and did a seven-day seven day workshop there, which was one of the first ones. I think they might have started a couple of years prior to that. And Professor Collage was really beginning to put this whole new approach of stability on the table. And along with what's called reflex stimulation, where you change the body and the posture through... Um, giving stimulation to afferent points in the body in the developmental positions. Now that's very difficult work in the sense of you need to be very well established in it to be effective. In a sense, the DNS exercise approach was either hadn't really started or was very young. And I also on that trip met, met Yiri Kumpelink, who is also a physio, um, so he started life in, in professional ballet in Prague. He then went to India and trained in yoga. And then he, uh, he's, he's uh, PhD in physio and he's got his own ideas on this stabilizing, some similar to, to Prague school and some his own, but it's that combination with Yiri of yoga and locomotion, which is fascinating. The agreement on the diaphragm is largely the same. And then from there, I've just done all of the trainings. So A, B, C, D of the clinical training, some of them multiple times and exercise one, two, three of the exercise stream plus uh, DNS running, DNS tennis, DNS shoulder and foot. I've done, you know, sort of one or two trainings every year for, you know, multiple years and with Jordan, yeah, we went to, that was D course, which is the sort of final training. It's a six-day course in Prague. That was a great experience because all the international practitioners were also there. So from Australia, uh, Inga, Inga Valadsen and Hans, Hans Lindgren. So uh, Mike Rintala, who's based in California. So yeah, good. Just really good to see all, all of those guys who you, you've trained with over the decades, all in the home space. And just that community and then that community of practice. Um, you know, it's, it's like, a, like a coming home and at the same time, it's a, it's a graduation, you know, it's, it's interesting. And I should also mention Peter Bittner, who's the physio who's developed the um, organ system palpation. And so I've done two of the yoga visceral courses with him and Martina. And I'm still doing sort of weekly uh, online yoga with Martina, which is a great privilege to get access to not only a very experienced Prague school physio, but she's done the Iyengar training. And the way she's marrying the two is, it's really exquisite. And just the, the little things you're picking up on, whether it's the foot, whether it's a way of going in and out of a posture and just, you know, the way someone teaches it's 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 all it's always great to be guided you know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um so is does that answer your question mate or was yeah, there was there absolutely. something else no no wholeheartedly yeah. answer the question it's an extraordinary journey that you have taken on for what best part of sort of 15 20 years now there was one thing that sort of caught my eye or my ears during that anecdote is that 
you went from, let's say, a conventional approach to the body. And when you came across some new information, it went against the norm, if we, if we want to call it that. Yep. And you followed truth rather than following the tribe or convention. And that is something quite difficult to do even at any time. So mm -hmm. when you sort of, you know, decided to follow truth, as you said, you sort of lost a couple. And again, mm -hmm. you know, we're a social being. It's difficult to lose the community that we are once thought that we were a part of. And then through your sort of progression and as a year's gone by, you, you go to Prague school and you meet, you know, like-minded people who are, who are also following truth. And I feel like that is a really similar approach or sort of system that's going on in society at the moment. So um, if you could unpack that in terms of, you know, following mm -hmm. truth rather than the tribe and believing in yourself, um, I think that'd be quite extraordinary. Yeah, well, the first first part of the answer to that is simple in that when I had a different experience in the body, although it was unfamiliar, I went, that's it. You know, that's what I've been looking for because I got a different recruitment and the functioning changed, but I wouldn't have chosen it, you know, which is back to conventionally. So this, this sort of gets to, you know, what we've been talking about all along is how do I know? You know, so I'm in a position and I might get a correction. I wouldn't have chosen it, you know. So it relates back to, you know, when you mentioned first coming in for the consult, we're bound by the, we're bound by the current habit. But the habit is, a, is an organisation of so many factors and it's to the millimetre. So our habitual presentation is also millimetre perfect, but it's non-preferred. So preferred is, is in line with up and down and the evolutionary organisation. So it, it's a perfect system that we, we, we've all been educated around sort of reducing things to their smallest part, you know, a reductionist approach, but that, that has zero effect at a global level because it's organised globally, you know. So mm. that's what we start to trust is that, the body-mind, the body-mind world task is already intelligent. It's, it's, it's already organised, but I'm making out, or I, I treat it like it's dumb and I've got to educate it progressively. So progress is something that's different to organisation, huh? You yep. know, we, we can definitely make progress in skill and in, um, um, you know, following, following something along, but true progress must be vertical. You know, we must get bumped up a stage or a level. And then, like in my case, in terms of truth, I've had, as long as I've been in the body, I've had an interest in, um, uh, like, the non-dual traditions of, like, who or what am I? What is this reality? And again, how do we know? So it's a purely experiential um, looking, but it's based on, you know, probably 5,000 years of guidance of um, following an inquiry until it dissolves. You know, so again, it's sort of the opposite to what we think around making progress where we're seemingly aggregating or adding. But actually, in, in true inquiry, we're dissolving or removing veils from what something appears to be to what it actually is, you know. And so, you know, I've, like I've been very fortunate that I've been able to pretty much not only surf those two lines, but really collapse them into one. And so the guidance with someone is to like, you know, trusting awareness with the body, the mind and the world, you know, being appearances in this knowing with having a really, having a really comprehensive framework for holding 
the body, the mind, and the task in relation to how they're organized. So, and then back to, you know, whether you lose someone, I think, I mean, Ken Wilber, who's, you know, came up with the really formalized integral theory said, if you go beyond convention, you're on your own. And what he meant by that is you've actually, you've actually freed yourself of do's and don'ts in order to truly explore. So that's what he meant by you're on your own. Now, you actually find there's others who are in this exploration basis. The aggregation at that level, which is post-conventional, is 10 to 100 to 1,000 times more powerful than convention. Because it's, it's, you know, again, it's already done the work to sort of be dissolving limitation, which by extension means to be, to be free, you know? Mm. So, you know, I'd say that freedom, truth, love, beauty are actually our biggest drivers, but we actually, we don't understand them well enough to let them lead and we don't have enough of a means to really do a good job of being established in those means. But that's, that's really our job in this, in this lifespan to, when I say arrive there, you know what I mean? To be, to be following your Dharma, you know, in relation to your life, your situation and what you're here to do. Mm. Just on that, Mark, maybe um, the, the influence that sages such as John Klein have had on, on your approach in this, in this field. Yeah. Well, yeah, if you read any of John Klein, like the clarity is just, you know, because all his books are satsang-based, meaning there's a community there and they're there together to explore truth. And there's, there's a questioning basis. When John answers, he doesn't answer as John Klein, the individual. He, he answers as formless awareness, you know? Because yeah. as he says himself, you know, the question comes in, I sit, and then the answer comes in. So it sounds pretty fancy, but if we look at any time when we have a, a huge breakthrough in our own lives, call it, call it a creative insight, it's the same process. There's an innocent moment, and then we go, ah, oh, that's it. That's what I've been looking for. It's here. So, you know, even, you know, what Josh was saying in the, in the previous podcast with you guys about, you know, clutter or not adding more, we, we have to be able to have, like, space in our in our lives for this to happen, you know, and we've got to, we've got to make sure it's there. You know, it's a little bit like we discussed the time in the sauna, but it's also just the time to sit with no agenda. You might have a notebook in front of you, but you're not there to write anything, but, you know, when something comes up, you, you know, you're capturing from that, that insight point of view because mm. it is also organised, you know, it is also intelligent. The absence of self and understanding that you are a vehicle. And what I find most extraordinary, and we've spoken about true beauty and art, and well, even, you know, people like Roger Federer when he swings a tennis racket, there is, I think actually Rupert Spira speaks about this quite well, about the absence of self, sorry, the absence of self during times of true beauty. And... Mm being able to transcend uh, it's pretty, pretty extraordinary stuff. And I think John Klein, the way he writes is that exact art form. Mm. Yeah. So we've got to be, there's a, in the Hindu tradition, the self is, is Brahman and Brahman means expanded and Brahman is formless. So it has no objective qualities. So that is self as the presence of awareness. Do you know what I mean? So th this is where it, even in the teachings, it, it get confused. But then the Buddha, the Buddha taught no self. And what that means is no entity phenomenally. So on the, in, in, the, in the manifest realm, no, no entity has lasting existence you know everything is intermittent movement and change and the no self 
around those moments of space that allow clarity is really the dissolution of the I concept. So as Dimmy and Mark, we know ourselves, you know, as that vehicle conceptually, and we, we use memory to, to uh, give that I concept seeming continuity, but all appearances are, are, are obviously just this intermittent appearing in the now, you know? And so we, we find that I, uh, but I, I that had that generates no objective qualities now, which is the same, but it's it's more like the time aspect. So I is the identity aspect. Now is the time aspect, and here is the space aspect. Or here could also be this. So I now and this are really synonyms for what we are. And then obviously those, those flavors, those flavors turn up as um, like, you know, what, what is central in experience. So if it's task, it's this, if it's like the sense of time, it's now. And if it's, if it's like what I think I am, it's I. Mm. And that's, I think, you know, that's maybe a contribution I'm making when I consider this work. Cause again, I, I just bring inquiry to it and, you know, my intention is to make it coherent. First of all, for, for, for self, for me, so that I'm actually not getting, you know, like confused or making poor decisions, but then by extension of teaching, you know, a, a, a pedagogy for it. Mm. Mm. Sometimes it's quite difficult to vocalise these thoughts and you do it in a pretty extraordinary way where... Um, well, in my in my experience, where masses have been able to to understand, um, so I thank you for for sharing those because, as I said, it's very difficult. <laughs> I find that I'm, when I sometimes try and converse, sometimes there's just no words for it. It's just purely inexperience. So um, to be able to converse, that is sort of the next next sort of step, if you will. Mm. And I think it's important, mate, because. You know, when people talk about the zone, you know, they want it because they want high performance. But then I'm trying to approach it with the wrong means, huh? Mm. Mm. So, you know, if I want sublime performance, I have to allow, but that seems counterintuitive because I'm used to efforting. And, you know, like this is where you need guidance, I think, as you as you're getting to these places, because it's very easy to misinterpret, you know, the intent. And because it's our interest in these, in these fields to, to be able to go into these, these understandings and not push them away because of convention, that's what I'm seeing is, is now the next opportunity for, for humankind going forward. So we, we have to start to talk, you know, talk like this as a, like a welcome mat for, you know, potential. Mm. Because it's what potential, when I say made of, pure potential is formless until it manifests. But if we, are, if we are actually really can come from that unmanifest space, then what we're manifesting is in accordance with it. Mm-hmm. You know, but if I'm, if I'm efforting as a, as a, concept that I'm a fragment and I'm actually up against the totality. So good luck, you know, you've got tremendous amounts of effort <laughs> to do that. <laughs> so Mark, if someone's listening and, you know, ears are perking up and very curious about self-inquiry and knowing, um, what would you recommend? Well, it's a good time, Dimmy, because, you know, if you jump on uh, YouTube and, and just type in Rupert Spira, I've actually been at a, 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 I first met Rupert when I was with Francis Lucille in Temecula, California, 2011. And then I went to his retreat in Italy, 2019. Rupert um, is an artist. So he's come from a ceramic artist background. He's very, very, uh, converse with the traditional teaching and then he said when he 
when he met Francis, I was able to make the teaching my own. Now, what, what Rupert is very good at is unpacking this understanding um, to make it impossible not to approach. You know, where some of, you know, even John, he's not going to, you know, maybe backtrack. I mean, if you, if, you know, if Rupert's main question is, are you aware? And the answer is a, is a yes from certainty. But then he says, where did you go to be able to answer yes? And you find that you went to non-objective. There was, there was nothing represented in order to create the answer. So that was his reformulation of Ramana Maharshi's Who Am I? And he said that, you know, that caused as much confusion as it did, you know, create, create pathways. So I think that's what Rupert's doing exceptionally well is uh, getting rid of all esoteric language, uh, making it situated in our current lives and just, you know, like doing the work to drop a couple of veils of how we veil this understanding and give yourself a chance to be a bit more established in, you know, particularly peace, the peace, uh, the peace of identity. And, you know, automatically you're just going to do so much better from, from that space than, you know, like, you know, trying to, trying to take on everything from the position of the fragment. Mm -hmm. Can you open up that, Mark, the fragment part and totality and connectiveness with all living things? Yeah. So all phenomena appear. So the question then becomes who or what do they appear to? So Francis uses the... Um, the idea of perceiving and perceived. So is thinking perceiving or perceived? It's perceived because we know thoughts. We know thinking, we know imagining. So who, who or what is perceiving? And so we have to turn 180 degrees to try and find this perceiver and we don't find anything objective. So that's how we know that Perceiving is both what we are, but if we're going to talk about qualities, it's, it's formless by its nature. And then if we say, is there anything else that could occupy, is there perceiving plus something else? You know, at that level, we say there can't be. It's, it just, it's not our experience. So perceiving is absolute. Whereas nothing phenomenal can be absolute. It's just, it's, it, it appears in its form as a fragment. So either, either a thought form, uh, sensation form, or sense perception form. So we know the world through the senses. So that's how the world and the, the body-mind vehicle are, you know, intertwined. So because we, we tend to think the continuity comes from time and the world, but both, mm. both appear and disappear in the perceiving. Yeah. And we just, we sit with that, you know, like we said earlier, we sit with that in our inquiry and say, is that what is happening? We don't take it on as a belief. That's so important. We just, oh, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to see if that's what's happening. And that's, that's what we do until it becomes much more just, you know, where we're functioning from. Mm. So, yeah, yeah, fragments are phenomenal. The, the word, the, the opposing word for phenomenon is, is noumenon, which these, are, these both come from Immanuel Kant. So the noumena, that which is, and the phenomena, that which appears. So awareness is, we can't say anything more than that. Consciousness is. And, you know, that it's, it's unchanging, ever-present, pure knowing. So the only continuity to experience is from that unmanifest, you know, side of the street, so to speak. Not that it's ever two, but 
in, from a pedagogical point of view, we do this work to see that's how it functions and then we just let it return to what it is, which is just what it's doing anyway. A few full stop moments in there, Mark. <laughs> Very good, mate. <laughs> well, I might take this opportunity to sort of shift the focus a little bit into uh, the crypto sphere. So um, my... Hey, talk about... Yeah, my experience with the crypto was, um, I think it was actually this retreat that just passed in December 2020. And um, you showed Cruz uh, check or Shintai. And you know, I have a look at this, mate. Uh, I think it was at the time, maybe two tenths of a cent or something around that anyway. And my ears sort of sparked about the crypto because I'd, I'd heard about it, you know, white noise in the background. And then uh, when you spoke about it, I was very curious. And I remember stopping you at the lift being like, hey, mate, I'm, I'm pretty curious here. Where do I sort of kick it all off? Um, and that was sort of the, the beginning for it, for the crypto space for me. And obviously now working with EOS Starter, which is a launch pad slash incubator for uh, projects that are, are committed to building on the EOS mainnet. So, you know, my main focus is around that at the moment, but obviously massively invested with um, Shintai and Dab Solutions as well. So, um, yeah, just sort of your experience with the crypto world where you sort of see it going, maybe some, you know, important, important figures such as um, Dan and maybe Ryan or, or wherever you want to take that. Yeah. 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 So for me, crypto has been the same as all these other uh, opportunities, realizations. So, uh, Elliot Janover, who's a client of mine, um, gave me a, a podcast on Bitcoin, and I appreciated what it was, uh, how important decentralization was, because we all know the how much we're being manipulated from a centralized perspective by political structures technology structures, etc. They don't, power is very, the power of power becomes pathological when as the power structure, you just start to use the power to get more. And that, that's the huge limitation of centralization. So decentralization means that something can't be manipulated or changed without a process being go, gone through which involves more than self-interested individuals. And, you know, that's known in the, in the Bitcoin and Ethereum spaces as proof of work. So it requires, you know, uh, miners to, to make in agreement to make a change to proof of stake. And then to Dan Larimer's delegated proof of stake where 15 of 21 have to agree, you know, on, on any change, on any central or structural change. So, you know, I think I think Dan's the kind of thinker who, well, he, he's driven by freedom, liberty, um, uh, you know, being able to live, you know, live from that place without without again in, interference by structures that don't don't have our best interests at heart. He's a He's an engineer, so and you know, obviously a mathematical genius. So he, having seen Bitcoin, known Satoshi, and then had two iterations in uh, Bitcoin shares and Steemit, which was the first decentralized social media platform. So I was, you know, listening to him, reading on him, and getting an interest in EOS when it was. It, it hadn't uh, it was going through its ICO, so um, you you were getting you were getting EOS tokens before they were EOS tokens, uh, and they were ERC twenty tokens on Ethereum. So I found that process unbelievably difficult to to work out how to you know jump on EOS at that stage. So I actually picked up my first EOS just after it uh, floated. Um, through the links wallet, which sort of you know sort of made it made it easy for that to happen. So 
EOS is scalable, so it can handle real-world problems and real-world transactions, scalability, efficiency. Um, but due to the way the money was raised, the creation of Block One, um, and just the sheer time it takes to get these things up, I think it, it's actually gone into the shadows, even though it's the most performant blockchain on Earth. And with particularly ETH being the first protocol to have smart contracts, so the ability for the contract to do the performant work, making it trustless, ETH has got um, thousands of developers and it's got, you know, what, uh, got good things running on the, on the protocol and it's the most well-known, but it, it's got a huge problem in terms of scalability and throughput. And so it's going to struggle to be the, the dominant protocol going forward. Um, and so now if we come to sort of this point in time where the Chintai team of David Packham, Ryan Betham, Philip Hamnett, um, uh, Chintai and Checks, just the vision of that team, the work they've done to, to be in the place they are to bring... Um, to go from DeFi to ProFi, so programmable finance, where you do KYC, know your customer, and anti-money money laundering, AML, um, you know, protocols built into the chain so that institutional finance can come on board is going to be the next, you know, massive wave that occurs in, in the markets. Because... We can now, in a sense, tokenize every asset that's been available in the conventional way from, you know, stocks and bonds to property. You know, uh, what tokenization does is package all the elements in something that has value, but then something that can be, you know, you can own a piece of something that's larger like real estate. And you've probably never really got a handle on crypto in the, in the true sense of just its sheer size and capability, but you sort of see how what it's doing in the markets is like the bet next big, uh, if you like, epic. Think of, think of from agrarian to industrial and from industrial to informational, if they're, they're called epics. So now in, we're going from the informational technological paradigm into crypto blockchain. I wouldn't even say a subset because it's, it, it's going to subsume that. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And, you know, the other thing about money is that it's been... It's been manipulated by powers that are behind the scenes of powers, you know, governments and so forth. So this decentralized, immutable, transparent aspect of crypto blockchain, I think, is going to allow people to truly like own their assets and their money, invest their assets and their money, and know that what's happening is actually happening. So there's going to be less person behind the curtain manipulating in ways that you say how the hell did did that crash happen you know I, I you know again I'm just speculating but I just see that going forward with this space being you know sort of pure mathematics and um, all of the sophistication built into the smart contract part of what's going on it's 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 already designed to do what it does, you know, mm. and that's transparent on, on both sides. And probably one other aspect of crypto that I haven't spoken of, for example, peer-to-peer -peer transacting. So if you think about sending money offshore, it can take, you know, 12 days. If you send money on EOS, it's going to take one to two seconds. <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, 
last week yeah. I got paid from Israel on a Sunday midday and um, Hernan messaged me, said, hey, mate, sent it through. I uh, refreshed the tab and it was already through. It's it, yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. Really is yeah. incredible. Um, so, yeah, I, I think a big point that you touched on the magnitude of the crypto space is unfathomable, unfathomable at the moment and it's really only just touching the surface. It really is. Yeah. So some pretty yeah, it's exciting news. to be involved, mate, isn't it? Oh, like, absolutely. You know, we're both you know, both close to the start line with all this. And and you know, like like in the way that we see, we've tried to back the best teams and we're backing the best teams to deliver. And you know, it's it when you bring that back to your own work, it's it's motivating to again, you know, work on being the best, mm. not competitively, but just comprehensively. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, very good, Mark. Thanks for that. Uh, that wrap up. Is there anything else you wanted to to share? Um. Yeah, just just picking up on what you said, mate. If any of this resonates, you know, it's um. Uh, you know, getting getting involved in a way that you can, whether it's on the. Uh, like consult side, if you've if you've got difficulties or you're looking to change the way you train, on the inquiry basis, you know it's 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 good guidance because it's it's sort of just removing where we get stuck in our seeing. Obviously, some of this is difficult at the moment because of uh, lockdowns, etc. In terms of you know getting together in the physical space, but then there's online solutions like this. Um, yeah, look, I, I think the best is yet to come around, you know, all the things we've talked about today. And, you know, if you're hearing this and some of it's new, like dive in, you know, there's nothing to be lost. Yeah. Yeah. Only unveiled. Yes. <laughs> Un unveiled slash revealed. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, thanks very much, Mark. I really appreciate your time. You know, always fantastic communicating with you. So, yeah, I really appreciate it. Thanks, mate. Thanks, Timmy. Cheers. Thanks for having me on.